Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. Martin, how you doing? Hi, Jason. How are you? Good, good. good. Thanks for coming on my podcast a second time. Yeah, it's uh, let's not make this a habit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The people are going to start to talk, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Martin and Jason meeting all the time on uh, on uh, Zoom. Okay, um, so the objective. I'm here with Martin Deck of Windsor, Ontario, for the second time. We spoke last time. We talked. We had a really good conversation about reggae and punk. If anyone is listening to this and wants to uh, go back and listen to that, just on a, a quick note, Martin, congratulations! You're the second most listen to guest I have after That's Chris awesome. Berry. Yeah. And Chris yeah. Berry is actually, you know, he's kind of well known. He's got yeah. more than you. And um, so that's, I don't know if that's your mailing list. My, my producer thinks maybe you have a lot of people that you're sending it out to. That's his theory, but I don't know. Just shared it on Facebook. I don't know. It's uh, maybe people are uh, clamoring for my wisdom about uh, reggae music because I haven't <laughs> uh, posted to my blog in six years. Yeah, well, and it's you've also got um, an article in the pipes you're working on as well about Jack. Is it I hope Jackie so. Miku? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Something else. That's kind of that's kind of been stalled, but yeah. You'll get back to that. Maybe when that because yeah. I, I promised my producer wanted to wanted to yes. publish that. He said your writing was very good. He went to your blog. Oh, He's nice. like, this guy can write. Yeah. So that's something we can put to the side, and maybe maybe that could be a second podcast. Maybe you could come and explain it to you know. Well, that. When point. I write it, when I just, write it, yeah, just yeah. just quickly to just so people understand it, it there's a Canadian reggae um, artist, his name, well, Jamaican Canadian called Jackie Me Too, right? Uh, yes, yes, and also Willie Williams. Willie Williams, right. Willie Williams. Together they made uh, Armageddon Time, and um, the Clash covered it, and I want to. I, th- I think you, you get in touch with Willie Williams. I not quite all the way. Okay. I got his. Okay. Uh, with his contact person, press manager, maybe. I don't know what wow. he's Okay, well, you're moving up the food chain because yeah, he, exactly. he's, he's sort of a legend in, in reggae circles, at least. Sure. You know, yeah, okay. All right, so the objective of this podcast is to talk about the cultural phenomenon of Tintin and LJ, and um, you and I are both huge fans. And so yeah. we're, gonna, we're, we're planning to do this probably in two episodes. I mean, it might end up being three, I'm not sure, but <laughs> I'm thinking probably two, just because we might, we're both very loquacious, right? So, that so, is true. That yeah, is true. So, so we're gonna start at least, if this is part one, we're, we're gonna start by, we're gonna sort of go through chronologically about the books and then also how they connect to LJ and his life and the what was going on in Europe and everything at that time. Right. So um, I, I don't know if like, I mean, technically the first book is uh, in the land of Soviets. Um, I don't yes. know. Yeah, I mean. Yes, which, which I have read, which I have. Um, this book, uh, let, let, let's just jump into my story. Sure, sort of go being. ahead, yeah. So yeah, um, I, I was born and raised in uh, Windsor, Ontario, which is 
you know, across the river from Detroit, but is also um, a center of uh, French culture in Canada, in North America, for over um, over 300 years. Um, the the city of Detroit was founded in 170 something or other, uh, and Windsor is based on the settlements that happened across the river, um, and uh, the French people settled here a long time ago. And so anyway, so I, I was born and raised in Windsor, totally Anglophone, but it was sent to a French grade school where I was surrounded by uh, French kids who um, were huge fans of Tintin and Asterix and stuff like that, which was well-stocked by the school library. So basically I had access to all Tintin in French. And so you then, read them uh, in French at first, right? Um, it's, I think so. Yeah. But some of them, I think I also, um, uh, my parents bought in English for home. And we would also, we'd bring our uh, French uh, Tintin's home and have my dad read them to us. And my dad nice. was, yeah. was a, a brilliant guy. He was a philosophy professor and he knew many languages like, you know, uh, Greek, Latin, uh, German, French. Wow. And he understood it. I'm not sure how well he could ever speak it, but he intentionally spoke it poorly when he read <laughs> to us so that we would correct him. Oh, interesting. And it's kind of so a, sort way of a learning of exercise. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it was always extra comedic <laughs> to have it read to you in this kind of halting, fake, uh, illiterate way. And, and deliberately <laughs> screwing the genders up or whatever, kind of like deliberately, oh, oh no, papa, you know, it's this yeah. or that or whatever. Yeah. But uh, so, so it's very highly tied with those memories, but then also, you know, just uh, reading and reading and reading. Uh, I read all that I could get my hands on. And then I think it's uh, in 1971 or two, something like that, that this book came out, the uh, uh, Opeida de Soviets. And yeah, it, it and was, it was, yeah, just, just to speak a little bit on that, it was originally, like when he started, he first published the first strip of that in 1929. And it was in a, right. it was in a Le Petit which was a weekly right. magazine in, in Brussels. And it was just a weekly, kind of like in the old newspapers, they had weekly funnies and things like yeah, that. So it was just exactly. a strip. So the, all, the early books are all like this. Like I was rereading Tintin in America today. And it's yeah. just this sort of halting thing one after. It's so different from the later books. There's no... Yeah, and it's, it's really interesting reading them. I haven't got very far in the series, but reading them in chronological order is so interesting because you really see how... Um, he starts to become a real storyteller instead of just this kind of, you know, I, I think they eventually got, or maybe immediately they were published as pages. It was like one page of the magazine was Tintin. I'm, I'm so, not sure that that's a good question. That's something we could fact check. Yeah. I, I, it could be that it was, I, I believe it was just one strip in the very early period. Okay. Yeah. In the very early period. Tintin probably. magazine, yeah, but, they had full right. pages, but I'm not sure. And this, and yeah. in this, in this, um, in this book, they're basically just six panels per page. Right. Okay. Yeah. So that could easily have been yeah. like it's, I, originally a strip. But um, then in, in the uh, slightly later books, uh, and, starting with, I think, The Broken Ear. Um, it's like, he is telling a story, but it's got to be in these little episodes. Right. Every, right. every page has a cliffhanger 
and every page starts with a new you know starts with the end of that cliffhanger it's very episodic and very um i'd say random like it it feels it feels very like tinted in america for example just feels very rote it feels like it's almost like a situation comedy like put it put tinted in a dangerous situation something happens and it's you can see the sort of the germination of his character and everything but like i'm reading it sort of comparing it to the later books and they're so much more complex we're going to get to them in the second podcast. yeah and there was somebody before tintin called totor but i've never really i've never delved into the totor universe (laughs) but yeah i I think yeah that's that's something that's out of the purview of this is the influences of tintin we we, right i'm not really sure about that yeah yeah, that, that's. I, I wanted to talk a little bit just about the the, the germination of you know Hergé and Belgium. I mean, what's interesting to me is you mentioned that your your father was an American, and then you you mentioned growing up in Windsor. You uh, there's this longstanding connection to um, you know to French culture, French North America. Let's say, so Canada's a bilingual country. Yeah. Belgium is also a bilingual. That's right. And it's, and, and it's, I, I don't like, there seems to be some connection, perhaps. I, I don't know if there's be, that's why we're fans, but I, yeah, I, I mean, do, it's, it's interesting because it, I mean, it, it, there are diehard Tintin fans all around the world. That's it? true. So it's, yeah. I'm not making too it, much out of Especially that. all yeah. the way across uh, Europe. I, I don't know if I told you before, Jason, that I, I met a guy, not really, but it just through Facebook um, who, um, basically he started i think he contacted me because my uh my avatar is tintin oh yeah right That's nice i don't know yeah. what i had been commenting about something musical but it turns out we have very many musical taste overlaps interesting and along with the tintin, tintin thing yeah yeah that's yeah, wow so that's a funny cool and and yeah. also you and i are like that too that's in a, a way yeah, yeah but yeah, i mean, I mean it, you know. if i may say like this guy's a tie I, I don't mean that maybe yeah go ahead this guy's a diehard reggae fan yeah. and and one of his favorite bands and very few people that i know will say this one of his very favorite bands is Dexy's Midnight Runner. So right, uh, yeah. that's also true of me. So it's <laughs> it's it's just kind of remarkable how much. Uh, uh, so is there a crossover the there? Tintin. Yeah, and but the connection that Tintin brings too, and so he's got a rabid fandom across. Yeah, the world. it's it's it's. I, I don't want to make too much of the bi- bilingual thing, but just that one of the things that, I, that occurs to me is. Belgium and Canada share a lot of commonality. I mean, there's obviously differences. I mean, Canada is enormous and Belgium is very small, but the there's a few interesting commonalities. There's there's this there's two large there's two groups of people who are Pierre Trudeau said in one of his essays that neither side is strong enough to overcome the other really right? right you have that in belgium it's even closer to 50 50 i think it's like 60 40 in canada it's about what 22 and a half percent french speaking like yeah. which yeah. is 22 and a half percent is enough that there's a yeah. significant portion of the country so so you have that the other thing that's interesting that's similar about the two countries is if you've been to brussels you'll know this Everybody in Brussels speaks French. I mean, it's like you go around, everybody's speaking French, but it's actually situated in the Dutch speaking part of mm. Belgium, right? Oh, Which is very like- similar to how Montreal is. I mean, it's not yeah. more extreme in Belgium, but yeah. Montreal has a very strong Anglophone component and English speaking right. backbone. You know, it has, you know, you know, you know what I mean? But yet it's surrounded in Quebec by, yeah. you know, by this. So it's, I wonder about these things. So you get these like, 
there's sort of, maybe there's a way of looking at the world from the perspective of a bilingual and bicultural country that's different if you're in, for example, India or the UK or some country with many different, like India has many, right? The UK has a few different sub-nationalities. There's England and then there's Scotland. Then there's some countries that that have almost none, like the United States, they have almost no... So, well, I mean, like sort of sub-nationalities totally, maybe Texans, I don't know. Is that... uh, I but see I mean, what you mean, but, I, but no, I mean, there's very strong... Well, it's just that there's, I think that there's, there's a long history in Canada of, um, with the duality of basically compromise between these two groups, right? Yes, that's true. Right, that's and true. I think that is probably true in Belgium as well. There's a kind of a... You know, you can't, there's these two different groups and they can't overcome each other. They have to work together. They don't always get along, right? Yeah, so you and have it, to find, right? It's you funny know? too, because I, I actually think, and I may be completely wrong, but I think Belgium is in, is in continually greater danger of falling apart than Canada is. Both countries think, have it all the time. Yes, I think it's even worse think in, it's Belgium. Yeah. in Belgium. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, <laughs> and it's funny too, I, I came up with this line and it's really just, for comedic purposes, I don't think there's anything too deep in it, but uh, it goes like this. Uh, Belgium was the first mistake, then Benelux. Then <laughs> right, yeah. it was the second. It's like you, you just, yeah. uh, like you, you can't, you're different. So yeah. <laughs> you can't push them all together, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, that's, it's interesting because I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's also, yeah, because it, it really demarcates Belgium is very different. Like it contains the linguistic groups of both of its neighbors, right? It contains right. French speaking and, and yeah. Dutch speaking. Yet it's totally different from those two countries. Right? I'd love to go there. I've never been. Anywhere. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. have you been to France or, or the Netherlands? No, not yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Soon, but yeah. Those, all of Europe is really, and, and the Netherlands is really cool. And so is France, but those countries have much more of a kind of a, um, although the Dutch are very known for compromise, but but the, the yeah. French are very sort of doggedly like there's like a nationality and you're yeah. a part of it. And they're very, and I like that about France. I like the way they're, especially the way they're like, they really, they sort of push this idea that race is not important or, you know, it's like yeah, yeah. French first, you know, it's French at first, least yeah. you're supposed um, to be. Right? What, uh, what I was going to say though was, yeah, that's all interesting. What I was thinking about earlier was, um, both, and I was going to say this, but going back to my story, I may skip and I just go ahead. Yeah. In the head, but yeah, I, um, I don't know what exactly why I suddenly wanted to read French again after like, you know, I, I went to a French grade school. I took a, a little bit of French in, in high school, a little bit of French in university just for easy credits. Cause I already knew. <laughs> right, Cause he knew it all. And, yeah. and, but, uh, then I just didn't read it for like, I don't know, 15 years, 20 Interesting. years. Interesting. And then in the early 2000s, I was like, I want to read French again. Mm. And I picked up a book and I was like, this is pretty, this is pretty tough. So you went back then to I the thought, comic books. Exactly. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I went back to the Tintin and I read, I don't know how many, we just split up my mom's books, but Interesting. I, I took a few of them, of the Tintins. My nephew took most of them. But there were about half and half French and English. Um, so I read as many as I could. I might have even taken some out of the library. Um, but I read them all. And then I read Simonon, Georges Simonon, the Belgian French writer um, who invented uh, Inspector Maigret. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you mentioned him the other day. He, I've never he heard is of him. renowned yeah. for being 
a very easy read because he writes in short sentences and uses almost only common words. Interesting. So you get introduced yeah. to the entire, um, I would say the entire geography of Paris and a bunch of the geography of France because he, he's mostly based in Paris, but every once in a while he goes on holiday. And when he does, a crime happens that he right. has to solve. Right. So um, he's, he's great. And a lot like Tintin in that manner that he's-, he's So sort of, sort of a mystery solving, puzzle solving. But exactly, and going thing, yeah. places, mm. going, and in, in the, you, I, I really got a sense of the, uh, without ever having been there, of the uh, Girondismans of Paris. Arrondissement, yeah. Arrondissement, yeah. Paris is Paris is built on on a spiral. Uh, it's, it's it's sort of like a kind of taking this the, the grid idea and using a spiral instead. It's very weird. So it starts out with the first one in the middle, and then second and third and fourth, and so on, so that the seventeenth can be right next to the fifth or something like just geographically. Did you, did you know that Detroit is uh, is a uh, its original design with a spoked wheel? Wow, and that was a French who did know that. That, that was then, a French design. And then, yeah. and then uh, a grid was imposed on top of it, and blah 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 blah. Interesting, blah. yeah. Well, th that's something that happens um, in, in North America in a variety of places where the French and the British systems collided. In Manitoba, for example, with yeah. uh, Louis Riel, the original, they had there was a debate over because in Quebec, if you go down the St. Lawrence, you'll notice that all the the farms are like long strips coming right that's the, the way river, we right that's, that's, the way that's they an old signoral system right yeah and so there was a there was a conflict in the 19th century in manitoba over that because the anglo settlers wanted to impose the square right. system and they eventually did right yeah. it sounds like something similar happened in detroit right and in windsor yeah. actually uh we we had just the strips at first and then the grid was imposed so it's like there's some very long blocks Right, right. It's, yeah, it's I mean, it's it, it, it's very interesting. So I wonder if there's something about the duality that attracts us because we're both, I, I grew up, I mean, my, my personal story is not quite, the duality was not important at the beginning because I, I didn't grow up in a, in a French speaking environment at all. Right. I didn't even know Tintin was in French. French when mm. I was a kid. I, I just discovered it in the school library, right. I think, because it's so long ago. Like I was a yeah. tiny kid, you know. Yeah. I started reading these books and then I got really into it. And then I was a fan ever since, you know. I've been a fan ever all my life. And so, I mean, later on in my, you know, I went uh, later on, I read them in French. I read them all yeah. in French. And I've even in some other languages I was studying, when I was studying German, I would get them in German. Right, exactly. It, it makes yeah, it make sense because it's nice short sentences. Right. And um, you can see the picture pictures, you can learn the vocabulary, yeah. Yeah. right? It's yeah. yeah. So so that's so there could be something to do with the duality. The, the one thing I wanted to talk a little bit about Hergé's upbringing, just, you know, because it's important in how Tintin manifests himself, like in Tintin and the Soviets, very anti-Soviet, right? Yeah. Very, it's clearly, so Tintin, uh, excuse me, Hergé, Georges Rémy was his real name. Yeah. He seems to have had a very sort of middle-class uh, traditional upbringing, sort of very Catholic yeah. Uh, conservative upbringing and that's another similarity between Belgium and Canada is the religion is deeply embedded in the schools there right which is true in this country as well and the language right. sort of correlates there as well there could for be sure, something for sure that. and I went to a French Catholic school right for, exactly yeah. yeah like the most of the, the in, here in Quebec most of most of the the French Canadians go, went to Cat. this is before the reforms right right 
Catholic schools. And so in, in our constitution, the Canadian constitution, Catholic and Protestant rights are built right into it, as yeah. they are in Belgium, I've heard. I've heard oh, that yeah. Belgium, they have Very some other... You know, I, I heard a there's this professor at Columbia called Richard Bullitt, and he was talking about Muslims in Europe and how, you know, there's different, uh, you know, the integration and all that stuff. And he was talking about how in some countries, you know, they, 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 they there's no, like in France, there's nothing. But he talked about how in Belgium, there's this thing where any group of religious people can go and petition to have their religion be subsidized in the school system mm. in there, you know, and he said there were groups of Muslims that were getting like the, these kind of is Islamist type classes that were being paid for by the Belgian wow. state because that was in their constitution, you know, and it was very different. Like in France, that would never happen, right? They would right. never have, you know, uh, they would never have Catholic or Protestant classes or anything in a French no. school because it's it's just a different mentality as yeah. in an American school as well, typically, the right. religion is, you know. Yeah. So that's something that I wonder if there's some crossover as well. But he seems to have grown up very conservative, very Catholic. And um, the other thing I wanted to note about him, just this goes back to your linguistic duality, is um, Belgium is a bilingual country. So um, there's two, and it's also a small country. So Alger was aware very early on of two very important things. One of the importance of getting his work translated immediately, right? He would have written right. it in Dutch, right, right, uh, right. In, in French, and then he would yeah. have immediately needed to have it translated it for the, you know, because they would, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know that, but I'm guessing. Well, that's, that's a really right? good question, actually, too. We, we should look into that for the next uh, version. We should well, it's it's quite clear that he he that if you, one of the things that used to, that always fascinates me about Tintin books is when you turn the page and it has the list of languages that it's right. You, you know, you know when yeah. you, you you go in and it says it's all in alphabetical order. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. At the top and everything. Yeah. Right. I mean, I sort of geek out on that sometimes. Like, you know, why is there an English one published in Spain or something or whatever? Like, I'm sort of reading through it. So, like, that shows you that by the end of his career, he 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 had aimed at the world and he yeah, knew that sure. language, getting it translated, yeah. was really important. And that must have been very early on. The other thing that must have happened very early on is that he must have known as he was getting popular that he had to break in the neighboring country of France to really make it some in some. Well, I mean, and that's right? what I was going to say about. Yeah, like I, 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 we should look into this very question because I sort of always assumed, partly because I did encounter him in French, I always assumed that he was like, this is the French kids around the world. This is their right. Idol. When you say um, French, you mean not Belgian, but French, French. speaking, right. French speaking. French speaking. So, right. Okay. So I, I think he was very successful in France very early on, um, but I'm not 100 percent sure. And then through France, I'm almost certain about the, that. I mean, someone yeah, could fact check on that to the yeah. whole uh, French speaking world. And I'm not sure when that we should look into that exact question about how to how when did he become um, so so international? Although the uh, the other thing. Well, the one thing that I did read that I thought this is pretty important is um, with the broken ear, his his fourth book. Um, he said, uh, "I'm going to actually do some research on these folks," and he was renowned for spending months just oh, yeah. before. So he wasn't just making it up. Oh, at not all. at all. And, he was and so, ridiculous. yeah, I, it's interesting in the broken ear the. Uh, the uh, setting is somewhere in South America in a, in a couple uh, made up uh, countries in South America. And, um, but the-, the uh, San Theodoros. 
San Theodorus, yeah, yeah. Yeah, San Theodorus is the Nuevo name of that Rico, country. Yeah. I think. Yeah. And and um, but the the uh, settings are so meticulous and just beautiful. And that, um, that's that's a really important point that he was he was utterly he was so detail oriented and he got more detail oriented as as his career went on. Like in yeah. the later books, you can it's really really tight. Yeah. There's a little anecdote about that in one of the one of the books, um, Prisoners of the Sun, I think it was, where he goes to he goes to first to Peru and then he's right. in, he's in South America and all this yeah. stuff. And so uh, I read somewhere, I forget where this was, but he, he was at, you know, at this point he was sort of well-known. So he was at some sort of function, you know, black tie thing in Brussels, right. or whatever. And he was hobnobbing around and there was the ambassador from Peru was there or someone from the embassy mm. and said, Oh, I read your book. It's beautiful. And complimenting him. And then he asked him, he said, you know, when did you visit my country? Like, you know, you must have, and LJ was like, I've never been there. I, you know, I just, and then the guy was like, what, you've never been? Like, he couldn't believe it. He's like, yeah. that's crazy. He said, because it was pretty, it looked, it was perfect. The looks of the people and yeah. everything. Yeah. And it was, and the guy, apparently, I don't know how the, this is known, but apparently the guy did not believe him, went back to the embassy and checked through the visa records to see, oh my apparently, like he was like, that guy must've been to Peru. There's yeah. no way, you know, that's he would, he would just dig through books and encyclopedias and kind of look at things yeah. and maps and stuff. You could, he was just this incredible sort of, the level of detail in, in Tintin is yeah, so and I think that's also yeah. when he started to um, started to try at least in the broken ear, like I said before, to try to tell a kind of a coherent, a coherent story. yeah instead narrative, of, yeah instead of just I'd say in um, Tintin in America, yeah. in the Soviets and and painting you know, Congo, it's just a bunch of crazy stuff that happens. oh yeah you know <laughs> and, and then in Tintin on Amarique, there is a bit bit of a more cohesive story, but it's sort of just because. First, he goes to Chicago, which is run by gangsters. Yeah. <laughs> and then he goes to out west, which is run by uh, shoot 'em ups. Like and, and, and also, it, it takes him this incredibly sure. He goes out into the country from outside Chicago, and there's a cactus. Like, it's 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 not right, geographically right, yeah, 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 yeah. coherent. Yeah, like, like, it would, you yeah, know, like, no, that doesn't make sense, you know? It's totally the great, Midwest, the great state of Kansas has not entered uh, Heritage's understanding of, of America. I would yeah. say I, it seemed to me completely based on um, films, you know, crime novels, and and yeah. and movies and comic strips. Probably that that makes sense. That he I don't think he ever visited America. He didn't no. he didn't travel very much, from no. what I understand. There's he he took one you know a few trips around in Europe. He was in France for a while when the Nazis invaded, and then he went back to Belgium. Right. He he was not a big traveler, which is. It makes me think that I think you mentioned something in one of our chats about this, about Tintin in America was sort of an exoticist. It was oh, like yeah, looking that, at America. Yeah, no. yeah. I mean, that, that was my first thought reading it, actually. I mean, I had just read, I reread Congo or, you know, flipped through Congo and thought, man, the, the stereotypes are so thick here. And it's, you know, I know that he's, I know that he's good hearted. And he's not trying to put anybody down, but yeah. man. <laughs> I and know. then I and then I go to Amerique, and yes, there's there's some uh, native people who are stereotyped, but mostly it's the white man is stereotyped. Yeah, like, that's right. Everybody's stereotyped exactly. in that book. And yeah. and I think yeah. I really do think, especially as he started to do some some serious research, I think he really opened up to other people, and and he really tried not to stereotype. And he definitely. And I mean, he, yeah. he wanted. It was very the uh, the ethnic dress was very important to him. It's kind of situate, and and 
you know, I think he, he definitely, I mean, he sent, he ends up sending Vincent to the moon. Like he, he wants it to be exciting and different. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Not just the same thing. I don't, like, I don't think Tang Tang ever, no, I'm, I'm exaggerating there too. <laughs> but mostly they're set in other countries. If I'm not mostly, mistaken. mostly they're what? Said in other countries, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. That's true. That's true. Emerald, most most that, of the stories are, um, in fact, probably over half are outside Europe. Yeah, at least, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. and then, and then within Europe, you know, he's a few different places. He's in the UK and the Black Island, yeah. and he's yeah. in Belgium and in the, you know, in one of there's one episode that takes entirely takes place entirely at that Marlin Spike, you know, with yeah. Bianca Castafiore yeah. and everything. Yeah, exactly. It's kind yeah. of a unique, epi- a unique Emerald. book, the Castafiore's Emerald. Yeah, but but he's, he doesn't spend a lot of time in Europe, um, really. But and it's very much an exoticist. It's interesting because the images in America. The other interesting thing about Tintin in America is it's the only book that has a real world uh, person who's a villain. Al Capone has oh, a very yeah. brief appearance. That's and, right. That's yeah. right. He's not the main villain. It's interesting. He shows up at the. Yeah. He's like, hey, yeah, you know, screw you or whatever. He's kind of there, and then and then and then Tintin spends the rest of the book fighting this, chasing this other guy called Bobby Smiles or whatever. Yeah, right? there's, you know? there's like a there's like a conspiracy in the mob to dethrone Al Capone, and they're the ones. That's who are right. Different. They're the ones he's that going one? after. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah, which is really that's weird. interesting. I had not thought about that. That's that's kind of that's interesting. You should mention that so because it, mostly he would ahead. not he would not in like actual politicians are not named. No, know? no politicians are named. I mean, if there are names, they're invented names. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, there's very interesting stereotypes of America. You're right. I mean, there's the Indians and there's the there's also one point that struck me because I just read it today was that. Um, the train's going along and he, you know, Tintin's lying on the tracks or something. And, and so, you know, he's going to run over by the train and the train stops. And it, what it turns out that a, a sort of an elderly looking woman had pulled the, uh, the yeah. brake and she's like this kind of Puritan do-gooder who says, Oh, I saw a Puma attacking a deer that I'm from the internet. I'm from the national association for animal protection or something. You, yeah, yeah. Or all this, you know, and which is, is sort of a, a funny stereotype of a sort of his, of an American yeah. Puritanism in a certain yep. way. Right. Yeah. Which, that's interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. It was one thing that struck me today. Cause I wouldn't have noticed that as a child. Right. No, yeah. but I, <laughs> right. the other you thing know. I wanted to mention that they going from my, uh, Going from America to uh, the Broken Ear is that uh, it, Broken Ear is a lot more coherent um, as far as uh, a story goes, but still there's so much insane, random stuff happening. Right. Uh, and right. I think that I, if I'm not mistaken, a little bit of that goes on all the time because you. That's true. You do have That's to have true. cliffhangers. You do have to have. Well, the, the part part of Tintin is in a lot of yeah. fights. You know. Well, just something important about what you're saying. I just want to mention quickly is. Part of the beauty of Tintin is just the beautiful slapstick comedy that gets, yeah. especially as Captain Haddock comes in and becomes this incredibly hilarious yeah. person who's constantly, you know, tripping over things and getting angry and all this kind of stuff. Haddock is not there for the first part of Tintin. Another thing I read once was that if you read those early books, including The Broken Ear, I believe, I can't remember, Tintin in America is like this. Tintin talks to his dog, Snowy. He has yeah, like yeah. conversations. And they have conversations. Yeah. Right. And, and he doesn't do that in the later books. And I, no. I there's one theory that Haddock may have kind of replaced Snowy right. as his 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy when they're actually just- when they're having a conversation. Yeah, it's kind of weird. And Snowy's answering him. It's like it's like what? yeah, and mostly <laughs> Snowy is is uh, is just providing comic relief, you know. But most uh, of the time, yeah, he's supportive of Tim, actual, right? Every once in a while, he'll like relay a piece of information, you know? right? Yeah, which is really is weird in America. Or... Yeah, he's like telling him things. It's like yeah. what? How does that work exactly? Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's also another thing, I, I, a book I read a long time ago pointed out the similarities between Snowy and Haddock. They're, they're both also prone to alcohol. Snowy very oh, yeah, often, yeah, he, loves to get sort of, he accidentally, like someone will put a glass down and he gets all drunk and he's staggering around, you know, just like yeah. Haddock, right? You know? Yeah. So it's, I, I don't it, know it, if that it, was it's, conscious. It's interesting too, because especially in these early books, uh, Tintin has a way of, of being slipped something or he's, he gets accidentally right. tired drunk. True. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's, almost, it's almost like having talking to you about it, it's almost like Elge had all of the all of the characters were in Tintin. And as it went through, and it was snowy, and then yeah. you have Haddock, and then and then eventually calculus, you have these different facets yeah. of, of Tintin's uh, meticulous personality versus his comic personality versus yeah. you know, I think that's what may have been happening as he created those other characters. I also started noticing, and I don't think I ever did, you know, read them chronologically like this um that there's kind of a proto uh calculus and a proto actually i saw a couple proto haddocks a couple of people looked like him and oh interesting yeah so it's like yeah so he was he was developing it. the idea yeah. somehow visually as well right yeah i don't remember that's in that's intended in the broken ear there's one character um, no, in Tintin in America like, who looks a bit like Hattie. He's got the same kind of big nose. He's one of the yeah. gangsters. Uh, yeah. Kind of looks like, and maybe you're referring yeah. to him. Yeah. That's interesting. So, so this period, as you've got from 1929 up through to World War II, you see, this is why I chose this. It's as the start, as the first episode is, it's kind of the germination, you know, by the, by the time you get to kind of like, um, uh, uh, I'm thinking Red Rackham's treasure is right. when, um, uh, calculus is entered right right that's that's kind of like the main characters are now there basically right. you know like the, the 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 recurring cast let's say who could yeah. you know who come through because thompson and thompson are very early on they, they come yeah, in, they're, they're almost they're in uh they're in the blue lotus actually yeah which is yeah. really early right yeah. uh, the theory about thompson and thompson because i mean they're such a hilarious I and mean, they're just it's just such incredible comic relief. These identical twins who are these serious policemen who are so stupid. They're both each one stupider than the next. Right. right. It's just yeah. like, it's incredible. How, and, and they're like these, like, you know, kind of like Interpol high level detect. Like, it's not like they're like low level cops. Right. Like, how that's, do you that's, know? Very <laughs> that's a joke yeah, right there. Right. Cops, they're, you know? they're detectives. The, th the theory. Yeah. Cause so that's kind of a joke on the institutional cause Tintin's not inside the police bureaucracy, that's but right, he's exactly, always yeah. solving the thing for them. Yeah. Right. They're yeah. always kind of. He's supposedly long. a reporter. Right. Supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's his profession, which of That's course right. he almost never exercises. I think I read once that he filed one report. I, mm. I, there's one, I think it's in the, 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 the shooting, shooting star mm. where there's one case where there's like a newspaper report and it says by Tintin, I, I forget which book mm. it is, but it's like out of all 24 books, you know, that's sort of dozens of little adventures he's involved yeah. in. He actually has one, yeah. you know, but the theory I heard about Thompson and Thompson was that it's a joke about how government bureaucracy is, first of all, stupid, but also duplicated stupid. 
right? Like there's two of them that are identical, but, I mean, but they're not quite identical. Thompson with a P as in Philadelphia exactly. or whatever. That's why when you, <laughs> right? said, when you said identical twins, it, no. They're, they're, their mustaches they're are a little bit different. Right? And they're doppelgangers. They're not even related. I, one has a P and the other one doesn't have a P. <laughs> right. They're not even related. That's true. And, and That's they're true. originally yeah. in French, they're Dupont. Dupont and Dupont. With a yeah. P and a D. And that's even better. It's like, yeah, I know. Like, how would it? Because <laughs> the Thompson, yeah. and Th I suppose you could say Thompson. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. they always say that with a P is in Philadelphia. Like, what the hell? You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, what does that even mean? Right. <laughs> yeah. That, they, they are a great. And, and they're, I got to reread a few in French again, too, because um, I, basically one of them says something very trite. Right, cliche, right, and then the next one screws up the cliche. Yes, and that's yes. the humor. It's like it's a, they get it backwards or something. Yeah. yeah, and then they start talking with each other to try and fix it, which is sort of more like because they're sort of confusing each other, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're a good example of. I mean, I just wanted to say that the, the, just back to the slapstick comedy because they're always sort of constantly sort of also physically kind of. You know, doing stupid Indeed. things. There's one yeah, where yeah. he's holding a, a magnifying glass and it starts his pants on fire. You know, yeah. it's like dumb little. The whole big thing in in I, I don't know which one uh, the Blue Lotus I think of where they're uh, they're falling down, breaking their noses. Right. Yeah. Right. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that's so that's really in the germination phase. Um, and there's again the very conservative. This brings us into, I think, some of the political um, things in Tintin, right? You mentioned the right. Blue Lotus. That was based, you know, actually on events that were happening in China at that time, apparently. Right. Real, there's the, the yeah. when they blow, when at one point, one of the, uh, the railroads is blown up somewhere yeah. in China. Apparently that really happened. And it was, it was a false flag thing. The Japanese, right. whatever, somehow staged yeah. it and all this stuff. Yeah, and but, his, his sympathies are pretty clear in that book uh, that he's with the Chinese against. Definitely, the yes, yeah. Well, it's it's well, he's he seems to be. I mean, just to, if we had to explain what Alger's political views is, and I wanted to run this by you as an idea, he seems to be clearly a conservative, a small C conservative, who kind of believes in kind of the ordered nature of things. Even in Tintin in America, I noticed that. Yeah, he, for sure. I think. I think he's being fed in by like all the local, like these sort of these American and they're all dressed up and wearing their right. bow ties. And that's, and that's juxtaposed with the gangster convention where they're all right. kind of like rowdy and sort yeah. of like smoking and kind of. Oh like yeah, low, for sure. There's, right? there's a whole, uh, there's a very old school. Uh, law and order. Uh, but stability, law, law conservative. European, type. European yeah. um, critique of America. That's From true. A very conservative yeah. point of view. And um, I'd say that he's totally playing into that. It's like they're they're crazy over there. It's it's lawless and and right. uh, yeah. you know, normal human behavior is. Uh, well, it's just before I come back to the conservative point, I want to get to. I wanted to tell you something about that. Um, the United States is an interesting society because um, if you look at like if you think about the developed world and then the developing world, so you have like you know Sweden or the United Kingdom or something are developed Canada, and then you have like Brazil or Nigeria or something like that. So those are clearly defined. The United States kind of seems. My brother made this point once. 
kind of seems in between that in a lot of ways. Like it has a lot of features of developing the dynamism. You know, when you go to some place in the Caribbean, some developing country. Which I've never been to. But oh, no, okay. Well, I mean, some like in the Dominican Republic, there's people on the streets selling things and there's all this yeah, kind yeah. of action. You don't see that so much in, in, in European and Canada, whereas you do see that in the US in a lot. Like yeah. you see that kind of, and also it's a more violent place. Than, than uh, the, the so-called developed world, it's yeah. got it's got very much a kind of a take care of yourself ethic, which many, you know, like in my wife's country, like people have guns in their houses for protection. Right. It's the same idea, right? It's like this yeah. is my house. If someone comes in, I'm going to shoot them. You know, it's yeah. like, uh, you know. And so I wonder if when he's looking at America this way, he's kind of seeing it like a developing country. I think. Yeah, I think in a oh. way, yes, but in another way, um, he's. I think he, he's basically a victim of mass media at that point. Right. He, yeah. He, yeah. Ha, he has a very superficial understanding of America. You really have to, um, you really have to appreciate uh, its complexity a little bit more than that. I, yeah, I'd say, fair. I'd say it's, I mean, I don't. Uh, yeah, uh, no, I think that's a, that's a fair point. He, world, he, he does seem, it, I mean, it is cartoonish. I mean, literally yeah. cartoonish yeah. in that, in that particular book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, I also, um, just uh, I want to get back to some of the, the stereotypes in a minute, but just to continue with this conservative thing. So he seems to be very much a small C conservative. He believes probably a monarchist. I mean, I, I don't know this, yeah, but he probably, probably believed in that. Right. You know, in the sense of the stability of a monarchy rather yeah. than a Republican system. And what struck what struck me, what, you know, in, in knowing about what happened to him with the Nazis is he was clearly a conservative, but he was totally not a fascist, no. right? And, and what, what is interesting how, I think a lot of modern people think cons- fascism and conservatism are sort of similar or at least on the same. And I don't think yeah. they are. I think they're really different. I wanted to hear what you thought about that. Well, I don't want to really want to, uh, uh, you know, declare a grand theory of fascism, but no, it's not a, <laughs> it's not a conservative movement. It's, a, it's reactionary, but it's not, they don't actually it's also very romantic really, it's very exactly, romantic not, right? not yeah. really see conservative because they're not out to conserve they want right. to, they right. actually want a revolution but uh you know into the to this you into whatever this kind of, brand new world is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's set in a completely imagined past and they're not interested in conserving you know, what is actually around what them. actually is around that came yeah. from the past. Yeah. What exactly. actually yeah, is the heritage of the past. Yeah. yeah. Now that that's would be the distinguishing thing but of, of between conservatism and fascism is they both look back in some senses. Yeah. But the conservative looks back and says, well, okay, it's looked simultaneously now and backwards and says, well, if something exists now, then there must be a reason for it. Yeah. Right. It, it, it's not here by accident. The fascist does not do the fascist is more like a communist or a, you know, in, a in, in so many right? ways. I mean, and I don't want to, this is a huge topic that I don't really want to. Uh, <laughs> I, I know. Align, <laughs> I just, I, just, but, I, it, it I mean, there is a reason why the word socialist is in the, is in the name national socialist. And we know that Mussolini was a socialist before That's he right. invented yeah. fascism. Um, in in a lot of ways, I would say it's uh, it's all a reaction against uh, the success of the Bolsheviks in in Russia. It's a kind of a there's a fear reaction, but there's also an emulation reaction. Mm-hmm. And um, there's yeah, also the, the, the notion, yeah, like conservatism the, is still. I think it understands the individual. 
as being a, a sort of sacred thing. I think conservatives understand that as perhaps liberals do as well, right? right? Uh, whereas fascists and, and communists, I'm not, they don't like you, if you're a true fascist or a true communist, you're not really you, you're just an avatar oh, exactly, for the right. great yeah. thing. And I, I'm, you know, we're all just in the service of this thing. Yeah, the state, is, the state is more important. Sorry, I interrupted you, but yeah. No, no, yeah. that's fine. That's yeah. fine. But yeah, I think, I think that's as much as I, as I want to yeah. say. Yeah. I, I, I didn't I don't, mean, yeah. yeah. I, I don't mean to, to get stuck on it, but it's it, because it was, it's so striking when you read the intense anti-communism in Land of Soviets. But, but I would say, I would say, you know, yes, it's intensely anti-communist. And, and I, the funny thing for me, to go back to my autobiography, is that, um, so yeah, I got this book. I, I was flabbergasted when I opened it uh, a few years ago to see that I could still sort of make out the price of the book. How much was it? It was about $40 wow. in, in 1973. Wow. Which is a hell of a That's lot of money. Expensive. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It was a very <laughs> nice gift for my dad to get me for Christmas. Oh, um, nice. But yeah, uh, that's a that's a touching the university story. bookstore where I went on to work for 20 years and all that kind of stuff. But the thing is, so 1973 was when I turned 11. And by the time I was 12, I was a diehard small C communist. Yeah, I didn't look <laughs> up. I didn't revere the Soviet Union and I hated Stalin and I didn't like Mao and I didn't you know, I, I hated the Soviet Union. But I identified as a small C communist. I had read the Communist Manifesto and had, and, and had turned into a small C communist. And I remained a small C communist for many, many years thereafter. And I just wondered, like, why didn't this book save me from that? It's a good question. Yeah. But I mean, the, the main I, I, thing about being a small C communist is that you're one of these people who goes around saying, about the Soviet Union, oh, that's not real communism. Right, yeah. And you think that that is basically, that absolves you of further thought or, or comment on the matter. Right. I mean, that, yeah, I, I've heard you say this about yourself, that you you were a, I've heard you say, I mean, yeah. I, I think, I, I know myself, I was much further left wing when I was younger. I, I never had, I, I, I don't consider myself to be any particular ideology. Uh, and I'm very loath to call myself a conservative because I love the idea of things changing. I'm very yeah. much into uh, kind of, a, I'm very open and I believe in kind of like, um, you know, but but the, it's one thing that I think you and I both have realized as we've grown older is that the idea that the government intervening and creating some sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of family-like utopia among the population is probably the worst idea in human history right you know it's pretty much it's right? pretty much up there for sure yeah, yeah. you know but, I mean, the evidence but, of that is pretty strong but uh <laughs> i i do have to um i do have to say about it not that yeah that was, I, that was a whole digression that's okay um, no it's good it, i would say it is extremely anti-soviet but then i also would say that uh, king Ottokar's scepter is i was just going to get to that yeah yeah very anti-fascist it's, it's nothing, so obviously anti it, it, It's not even hidden. Monsieur yeah. is, is the yeah. name of, of the, 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 the Bordurian, uh, you know, president or whatever he is, who's right. trying to overthrow the neighboring country. And again, you've got a monarchy 
that's right? being overthrown. You know what I mean? And Tintin yep. comes in and saves the established exactly. monarchy from the yeah. from this kind of like this fascist. It's really a fascist yeah. uh, overthrow. It's obviously a, a something about the Anschluss. I think. I think. I think. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the yeah. Anschluss and then the Sudetenland. And yeah, I was looking at the numbers. Of course, I can't. Re I don't really have a. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. I just want to just say so our listeners are not too confused. They're not too Tintin fanatic. Okay. The st the story is there's two fictitious countries in Eastern Europe. One called Sildavia or Sildavia, and the other one called Borduria. And they've been, you know, they've been enemies for centuries, going back right. to the Middle Ages and everything. And in Sildavia, there's a there's a king, a monarch who has a scepter that who who the man who fought off the Bordurians in the 13th century, you know, right. so, so the king has to have the scepter or yeah. else he can't be king. And so there's there's a very complex plot by Bordurian fascists to infiltrate and you know steal the scepter. It's a very complicated, you know, the student people can read it. Uh, and Tintin comes in, and again, you've got you've got a monarchy, a stable monarchical system, and then you've got a neighbor that has this new, more aggressive kind of political system, yeah. right? Which sort of fascist, and and it's very very clearly, it you know, it seems to be almost yeah, Sudetenland and Anschluss, and, and it's in, Poland. It's interesting right? about the visuals of the uh, King Ottokar scepter, the book. Which is one of my favorites. It's amazing, yeah. So it's you, even though it doesn't have that, attic, it's still absolutely right. amazing. If yeah. you 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 did actually ask me what's your favorite, and I mentioned that a cop two, I'd say, um, and it's uh, it's interesting because um, the the kingdom of Sild of Sildavia, 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 yeah, I think I I called it Sildavi, but Sildavi. <laughs> uh, has a, a very um, medieval. Aesthetic, yeah, which really appealed, has always very much appealed to me. I don't know what I mean. I'm not. It's interesting because I'm not a, like a Tolkien fanatic, thank God. <laughs> but um, but uh, <laughs> I am a Tintin fanatic. But I I really the Middle Ages really appealed to me, and and then against up against that is this modernist fascist right. yeah. uh, aesthetic of uh, Borduria, which is just terrifying. There's nothing right. appealing about it at all. It's just like. Yeah, it's it's inter it's interesting because um yeah first of all I just want to you know reinforce your notion that King Godricar's scepter was also a very brave book to write because I in some sense if yeah. you think about what was going on at that he yeah. was openly saying you know I don't know if there were there must have been fascists in Belgium I mean oh for sure there were you know you know what I mean yeah. it's like so that's it's kind of like he he was really sticking his neck out the other interesting thing about it is Alger law it's so strange. He lost his job um, because the Sivensiem had to close down, or you know, or whatever. And then Le Soir opened up, or something. And so, anyway, so he got another job during the war, and he worked all through the war. And during the war, he stopped. I think I may have mentioned this earlier, but he stopped doing political stories. And he did. Yeah. They, like, you have like the the treasure hunt in the Caribbean, Red Rackham's treasure. Yeah. The, the the you know on Wikipedia it said something like he went from uh, from reporter to explorer. You know, he kind of like yeah, that's a good way to put it. I Right, but but except that we I never believed that he was a reporter. Right, well, yeah, <laughs> as we were saying a minute ago, right. Yeah. But what's interesting is that just to you know just back to LJ as a person. So after the war, he was arrested as a, as a collaborator and actually mm. did spent a couple of nights a night or two in prison and he was denounced publicly and all this stuff. And I was I remember reading about this about how he was denounced and all this and I thought. 
did these fucking people ever read King Ottokar's scepter? Mm. Like, did they under, like, how could you imagine a person who would write that book would be pro-Nazi? That's just like, you have to be They do. They were just mad at him because he worked through the war. And I I can kind of understand that, except also it's like, what are you going to do? You have to. Right. right? You've got to survive. I mean, uh, it's interesting too, in a, in a strange way, maybe. I mean, I don't know uh, what other people's faves are or anything like that, but yeah, King Ottokar's scepter and the uh, the one before that, the Black Island. Um, mm-hmm. I, Scotland, yeah. Still more, yeah, the, uh, the aesthetic of that is just so... Um, Dark. Ama- yeah, but yeah. So, just amazing. Uh, the caves and the and the cliffs and the mountains and that just... And and the the uh, Scottish countryside, yeah, and Kin- it's beautiful. It's it's amazing, yeah, and, uh, and has a total. V- visually, Elge was was a real genius artist. I yeah. think that's what you're referring to. Right? Yeah, it's just the, yeah, yeah, the drawing. But it, I guess what I'm saying is, those uh, the books that you're talking about, uh, Red Rockham's Treasure and uh, the Secret of the Unicorn, I think are the ones that really probably launched his uh worldwide appeal as well so it's it's That's kind interesting of, it's kind possible, of taking yeah. a step back from being a reporter and uh and trying to mirror the political adventures obviously you're gonna you have to be more circumspect when you're living in a dominated country right so so to then move into a more lighthearted adventure, I'm sorry, it just makes sense. But it oh, also it does. Means, yeah, it also means that your your appeal is going to be even broader because um, basically people are just you get to um, project yourself onto Tintin, I suppose, is what we were doing, and uh, and live this exciting. Uh, it's a life. vicarious yeah. thing, right? As yeah. a kid, I mean, I'm sure you did this. I'm sure every boy did this. You reading Tintin, like I want to be that guy going. You know, yeah. it, it actually formed part of, in some senses, like when I got older, I wanted to go live in other parts of the world. Right. I wanted to travel, and I think some of that was, I mean, my family we traveled a fair bit, but I eventually went and lived. I lived in Slovakia. Oh my! Uh, yeah, for for about a year, and I also lived in East Asia for three years, and so I, I did a right, lot right. of traveling. Right, right. I knew about East Asia. Yeah. yeah, but um, but just the just back to the the you mentioned the medieval thing about um, yeah, it's very interesting. If it's true, like the further east you go in Europe, like if you if you for go sure. to Romania, I was in Romania once, and uh, the train got rerouted. I was in Transylvania, literally in Transylvania, yeah. and yeah. the train got rerouted somehow. There were floods, and you know, and so we're up there in this, and you you're going through the the train was going very slowly through very small villages, and it, this was in about two thousand and five, something like that. You literally see people wearing like it looks like it's a hundred years ago. They're wearing these kind of like traditional sort of folklore. I, I remember thinking, is there some sort of folklore festival yeah. going on? Like what, you know, there's sort of horse-drawn carts, people using yeah. hand sickles out in the field, yep. you know, cutting yep. cutting uh, things down and all this, and gypsies, like literal yep. gypsies wearing different yep. kinds of clothes. You know, it's like, yep. and, and, it's, and it's, it was, that was a real experience. Like, cause that's really, I mean, Slovakia is, I mean, look practically modern compared to that, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. I mean? but just to say, to get back to your Soldavia thing, Soldavia seems to be some sort of a, like many of the fictional countries, I had something I prepared about that. They seem to be sort of mixtures of different things. So it seems yeah. to be part uh, Zudetenland, part uh, Romania, part, 
you know, uh, Czechoslovakia. Like, it's kind of like a few different things somehow, yeah. I think. Maybe, yeah, maybe like yeah. Bulgaria, because it mentions the Turks. In, in that one oh, yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah. so it could be something, to, I don't know. I don't think the Turks yeah. were ever in, like, in, in uh, you know, Zudetenland or anything. I don't no, think definitely not. not. No, right? So that was, that's something I wanted, I wanted to echo. But just a quick thing that occurred to me while we were talking was, is it possible that Hergé was sitting there, because I think he published um, um, King Ottokar's Scepter in 1937. You think he was sitting there in Belgium and was sort of creating an, oh my God, I'm terrified of my neighbor, kind of like the I would say Germany that. next door. He, I want to maintain the monarchy of my sacred country. I'm a conservative. There's yeah. this country next to mine, which has uh, a fascist dictator that's plotting, that literally plotting against other yeah. countries. So yeah. I don't know if that, I mean, it may, maybe I think, his, his fears were being. I think probably for sure. And and also, like you say, taking a stand against it, you know? And, and That's true. Uh, yeah. And, you know, which obviously if people were taking stands against it uh, consistently through the 30s of people of various kinds. Um, but yeah, there's always a, there is this sense, of course, that that it's far right. And so then the-, the You mean the fascist, the Nazis. The fascism is the far right. And so right. then the, the, the near right or the uh, moderate- Conservative, right, yeah. <laughs> it's sort they, of adjacent. They, do have, to def- they yeah. do have to define themselves against it if- well, I, I actually one of the scary things about the United States right now is that the is that the uh, moderate Republicans, if they exist at all, are not defining themselves against the yeah a kind of more. The United States is a little more complex because of sure. uh, because it doesn't have a monarchy. So uh, you, you know, what, just I don't want to linger too long on the U.S. because it's a bit too complicated. But you know, what, one of the one of the things Jordan Peterson mentioned recently on the passing of the Queen was how he recounted an experience, how he was in Nashville and how Trump oh, showed up. I don't know if you heard that. And he was like, and there was this buzz and everything. And he said, it's not healthy to have a, a person, like it, it's healthier to have someone who's clearly the king of the country or whatever. Yeah. Not You, know, you can't sure. go and I, choose that person. This is I've, not a good situation. I, I've come to some kind of realization like about that. About the monarchy? For, for certainly uh, when I was a small C communist, but even afterwards, I was, I was kind of a, um, I, don't, I don't know what exactly to a call socialist? it. A socialist? But I, I, I wanted, yeah. I did, I remained a socialist, social democrat, um, I certainly was, I fetishized this idea of, uh, of um, direct democracy as if that was going to solve everything, yeah. which, which I, I've come to realize, no, not really. It might make things worse. Um, it <laughs> might make things worse. But I mean, for sure, there, there, seems, there seems to be, that not seems to be, there is a large element of the irrational in uh, human nature. And uh, to pretend that there isn't, is is dangerous and i think part of the part of the uh desacralization of of the world is this idea that we can make it run rationally and and uh and without any nonsense and um it's sort of the sam harris stephen pinker view i think, I think so you just use think, rationality then it, it's funny just i also identify it very strongly with the, with noam chomsky's uh aversion against sports like he's always going on about it, sports, how what, what a waste of time it is, and and how you know if people would only apply the uh, right, yeah. brain power 
that they that they use it for sports uh, to something like politics, the world would be a better place. And I'm, I'm like, not sure that's true. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> I think it's like, absolutely wrong. And I think yeah. I think uh, sports is wonderful. It's probably a good outlet for people. It's to, totally, yeah. it's wonderful because you can have this irrational identification and this tribe mentality. Totally. Where with like, I mean, aside from some soccer hooliganism. It, it, has doesn't, no it almost has no damage on the world. Yeah, exactly. and, and yet people can, can, can do exactly as you say. They can have this totally natural sense of, I am part of this group and these are my people and we're going to go beat this other group and, and, have, and, have almost, and have almost no violent victims as a result yeah. of that. It's just, yeah. Chomsky is completely opposite. He's, it's yeah. an anti-truth what he's saying. I, I think, think so too. And and yeah. it, but it's re, it's related to the question of the monarchy and and, and it is. Yeah. Whole, I mean, in a way, the way that you put it about conservatives, and this is, I guess, the Burkean ideal of conservatism, which hardly any real life conservatives ever actually live up to. But the Burkean ideal is, no, don't let's get rid of it. Let's yeah. figure out what it's it might serve for. some purpose. Yeah. It yeah. might actually serve. Maybe we should try and change its, its well, function. Uh, right. Right now we're um, right now we're about to find out what happens when uh, here in Canada you mean every, monarchy? obviously yeah. the, the queen was uh, was an in, a single singular individual and uh, and uh, Prince Charles <laughs> he is not Charles is not the same individual so um, yeah. we'll find out whether the institution of the monarchy is actually still strong enough but I mean the one of the things about it is you know. Uh, somebody pointed out, yeah, the monarchy has really served the British people well since about 1936, and that's true. Like, I don't, I don't know the, yeah. a lot of details about the the kings before um, Edward. There, there was a kind of a crisis. It's, it's oh, there the was a crisis there about was a Edward because, them, yeah. it, because because he was not suited to the monarchy, yeah. and and fortunately he stepped down. And and but that's but right. I guess the other yeah. the other people be, between Victoria and, and him were not all that impressive. But you know what? If it hadn't been for that institution, the, um, Elizabeth would never have been delivered to Britain. That's true. And, and it's true. because of that institution that they got Elizabeth, and she's a mark, remarkable. She was remarkable. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's also the other thing I wanted to return to this idea of conservatism. Um, Winston Churchill bragged that he saved freedom. From, from mm -hmm. the world he actually and so conservatism has a long connection with the concept of individual freedom that we i think for people like in like in your generation and maybe in mine in coming up in canada conservatism when, when i was growing up and it still kind of feels to me this way is almost like a dirty word you don't want to be a conservative it's not. like those are the stodgy old well, let, let me tell you who, this you know it's, and, it's, and yet it's like, well, what is so wrong with the idea that you're an individual and you can be free and that should be something good i mean you know yeah but let me just that? say this Jason, before you uh before we uh, we got to get back to her shape, but let me yeah no i know we will yeah but I, it actually took, does connect actually it's i took connected. it test yeah. online and I got classical liberal, and I'm happy with that. And I'm yeah, sick <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to defend conservatism. Although I Fair do enough. understand, I do understand the ideal of conservatism, and I, and I can appreciate that. And I myself, I grew up in a very, uh, I wouldn't, I would say, very small C. We didn't talk about politics at all in my house. Really Not interesting, but very Catholic home. And uh, that was certainly one of the appeals of. Okay. Uh, I, I I grew up probably in one of the uh, appeals of the Middle Ages. 
Yeah, I, I, I grew up in a totally opposite, very, very left-wing hippie parents, you know, sort of like yeah. total Trudeau liberal type uh, parents. But just, just to close the thought on classical liberals, I actually created a group of friends that we, there's a bunch of us, and we all, uh, Mike Getta, you know Mike Getta? Oh, I know Mike Getta. Yeah, Mike Getta's in that group. No, I actually met him. I met Mike. He's a great guy. Yeah, and Sid yeah. Parkinson and Selge, we met, and a bunch of us. And we go and, you know, we hang out together. And the name of the group is Clowns. Classical liberals opposed to Western neo-socialism, right? <laughs> it's just an excuse for a bunch of dudes to get together and drink beer, and you know. That's and so, and, so, and you're you're invited if you want. If ever you're a bunch of oh, you're invited. If I can, if I more. ever make, I will make it up there. But okay. I don't know. All right. So, so back to Tintin. I, I think that um, in many respects, LJ being a conservative is closer to what you and I would consider a classical liberal in the sense that he he looked he he was looking around at Europe and he was seeing fascism and communism and then what was the other option was this kind of thing well okay keep the thing we have which is this sort of enlightenment liberalism and the monarchy i mean he also had you know quote unquote conservative views as well that maybe some classical liberals may not have endorsed like you know many classical liberals would not have wanted a monarchy that's very true and that 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 actually just occurred to me here having having just spouted all this pro-monarchism. You're a Republican? That, that does not small really, R Republican? I, I, I would yeah. hope to be a... And it, yeah, and it, it's total, total got nothing to do with Hergé, but um, one of the things about re, small R Republicanism is that the British have a very long history of it. I mean, for one thing, they actually did that's, get rid of their monarch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that I, I was just thinking about was that... Um, I'm not 100% sure why I was thinking about this, but I was thinking their um, national epic, as it were, is Paradise Lost. It was written by John Milton, who was a very uh, anti-monarchist, so much so. Interesting. First. Could you repeat that? Just because it it bugged for a second. John Milton Milton wrote Paradise Paradise Lost, which has been, uh, I'd say, maybe the third most popular book in the English language hmm. after the wow. Bible and Pilgrim's Progress. Interesting. Within like houses that didn't have any books hmm. had those three books. Wow. And, and this is in the United the, Kingdom. It was in the United Kingdom. Yeah, it is, right. That's why I say it's the national epic of, of the British. And he himself was a defender of the Republic and of the actual, the execution of the, of the King. Wow. He wrote the defense of the execution of the king. So th- th- this part of somehow or other is melded into the British. Uh, it is, yeah. And, and personality. And and I think they have a, a Republican monarchy. Yeah. Like well, you know it's, I mean? it's, it's quite clear. I mean, the, the monarchy has not had that much political power for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's quite clear that they have... You know, the United Kingdom and Canada as well. And, and I think that we should recognize, I mean, you know, we don't have to necessarily be proud of the monarchy or the British, but we we do have a pretty good and pretty stable country and democracy yeah. generally we have had for yeah. quite a long time. And is it a coincidence that we are inheritors of the, like, is that is that just a coincidence is. or is there something about that system and using that system over a long time, you know, carefully, yeah. Yeah. I think that I, I think it is like it's I, I would not go too far in my like I, I don't believe in the monarchy for Canada either. But if there's a choice between, 
you know, sort of burning the system down and building a republic or keeping what we have. I think I would keep what we have. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, I, mean uh, I, I was, you know, people have been opining about this for a few days now. And I yeah, since my we're line recording is, this on, uh, not long after Queen Elizabeth passed away. That's right. About a week so after. The, for so the, the, the main thing that I said was, you know, uh, we can consider another system, but I, let's not have the American system or the french system yeah. or the german system or yeah. the, the italian system so like i i, I wouldn't mind having the governor general be an elected yeah. post of some kind like if oh, there's some way that i could if i could elect the governor general right. it could still be connected to the monarchy in some way i don't have a problem it could it could be the, mo the monarchy could somehow there could be some choosing of a few candidates or something and we i don't know that you know but here's one final thought about okay go that. for it but back back to the to the idea of stability in canada and belgium and, and yes canada and belgium are both fragile countries i mean just to close the thought you know opening up the constitution to change our system of government uh what could go wrong you know it's like not mm -hmm. like that ever caused any trouble with <laughs> this guy you know <laughs> Last time we did that in the 80s and the 90s, it nearly blew the country apart, literally. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, we came this far away. I was there on St. Catherine Street when the riots were going yeah. on after the referendum in 95. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is something that marked me when I was a young person. No, and, 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 it's interesting you know? too, and I wish I can't remember the title of the book. I didn't read it, but I read a very good review of it. And it's basically saying nobody had a clue or a plan for what would happen if they had won that referendum not they the pq didn't know what they were going to do and they the uh, federal the federal had people, no idea the what federalists had do. no plan yeah. yeah and it's 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 wild to think of that it, it kind of reminds me of what happened with brexit in the uk it's like they i don't think the the brexiteers were ready to win yeah. and certainly the uh the remainers were not willing Ready but if they know. if they had won, I mean, if if the if the yes side had won, it would have had to have been respected in some senses, you know. Even the, you know what I mean, because it would have, yeah, exactly. it would have legitimized everything if it had no, been fifty one percent, right? No, you for know? sure. If if, yeah. if the yes side had won, it, something would have had to happen. For yeah, sure. some major change of some yeah. kind. Yeah. The other thing that um, just because I don't want to get too stuck on Canadian politics, but. Chantal Hébert wrote an interesting book about how it turned the three leaders of the yes side, the, those who were in favor of sovereignty, right. uh, Mario Dumont, Jacques Parizeau, and Lucien Bouchard, had yeah. three totally different ideas of what it was going to mean. You know right. what I mean? Exactly. The Federalist side, it was kind of obvious. We just keep yeah. going on doing yeah. what we're doing. You know, Quebec yeah. is a part of Canada and it just stays that way. But the, but it turns out, and it turns out that Parizeau was really the only true sovereign separatist, like really full right. on. He was that, you know, and he apparently stopped taking the calls of Lucien Bouchard at the end. He, <laughs> he saw that it looked like it was going to win. He was like, screw you guys. You've done your job and I'm going to go and. Oh, know. wild. Yeah. Wild. And, and then he got drunk and he was all ready to celebrate. And then it turned out it wasn't. And he made this horrible comment about the immigrants. And, le vote ethnique. You know, which yeah. is a fa yeah. you know, notorious yeah. thing, you know, so yeah. anyway, but just to say that Canada and Belgium are both fragile countries and maybe there's something about that connection to the monarchy that might help that yeah, stability. Yeah, I, I don't yeah, know. I bet you, I bet you Hergé thought so. Yeah, um, he, he definitely did. Yeah. But I, this, this brings up the other uh, autobiographical bit that I have to talk about. It's kind of. He's due. It's kind of insane. It's kind of very unique. Okay, so and it's in a, in a way, it's strangely related because 
Um, if you can remember, and maybe you can't remember yourself all the way back to the, the 70s um, and early 80s, before the uh, Bloc Québécois was formed as a, as a separatist party on the national level, mm -hmm. um, people who really believed in Quebec independence had nobody to vote for in the federally. Federal yeah, so that's right. I, think I, I do, I do probably, remember that. I remember probably, the formation of the BQ. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Probably very poor turnout. I'm not really sure. But also, as a result of that uh, um, discontent with Canada, it, it allowed for the rise of the most powerful joke uh, party, I think, in the history of the world, the Rhinoceros Party of Canada. Oh. Is that Which, what led to it? It started uh, in Quebec? It started in Quebec. Wow, sure. interesting. Yeah. And it, it, it was very... It did very well in Quebec in the 70s in the and 80s. Of 1980. Wow, especially. interesting. And, the first referendum, yeah. Right. And, and exactly, in the aftermath of the first referendum and before the formation of the BQ, so the Parti Québécois, I mean, not Parti Québécois, Parti Rhinoceros, Rhinoceros Party, started to get all this press. And I, as a young small C communist and, and capital A absurdist, thought this is ab <laughs> absolutely excellent. Let me join. Let me run for them. Except that in 1980, I was not yet of age. I was only 17. I couldn't wow. run in the election. So I uh, had a, a an, well, I still have an excellent friend who is an anarchist, small A, capital A, whatever, um, uh, named Len Wallace. And he became my, um, my press uh, officer, my campaign officer. Uh, what's it called manager campaign, campaign manager, manager. Yeah. yeah and he was incredible he had a lot of connections in the press and he got me on um the radio on the, wow. on the biggest talk radio in in windsor ckww and i i was on a phone-in show talking about uh my writing campaign at that point uh, i was running under the name of martin x and i was i wanted martin to x it. Martin X, I wanted people cool to write name. sort of Malcolm X kind of well, a this feel is, to it. it right? To be honest, it hadn't even occurred to me. Right. Like, I was okay. just like, I, did, I didn't want to run under my, <coughs> your, under your, my your family name. name. So I just said Martin X. And I appeared in public only with a bag over my head, but I got <laughs> oh, to be on the radio. And so I got to be on the radio. And uh, during this call in show, Oh, before I, before, no, I've already jumped ahead. The thing about the Rhinoceros Party is that they had many, many nonsensical platforms. The best one, uh, the best one was, we're going to change from driving on the right-hand side of the road, driving <laughs> on the left-hand left -hand side, but yeah. it's going to be phased in. We're going to go trucks first. <laughs> and here in Windsor, my, here in Windsor, my plank was, we're going to tear down the Ambassador Bridge, the bridge between Detroit and Windsor, and we're going to pave the river so that people can drive over at any point. Anyway, oh, man. so, so one of the planks of the Rhinoceros Party was based on Tintin au Congo. Okay. Because right. Tintin yes. au Congo, yeah. one of the insane adventures, unexplained adventures. He, he, he blows up a rhinoceros. He blows up a yeah, rhinoceros. with a stick of dynamite. It's the craziest thing. It's the exactly. weirdest thing. So, so, so the rhinoceros party said, 
they they claimed that they were the leader of the party was a rhinoceros named Cornelius who lived in the Vancouver Zoo, and they claimed that uh, the rhinoceros that Tintin blew up was uh, a martyr. A cousin of Cornelius, oh. and it was <laughs> taken as a personal insult by Cornelius. And as a result, and this is what they this is what they promised: oh, if man. the rhinoceros party won the election, Canada would declare war on Belgium. <laughs> so that was one that, of the, that uh, is one so of the planks, hilarious, right? One of the planks in the platform. So I'm on the radio, and I get this call, and I actually recognize the the person's voice. She was the uh, perennial candidate for the Communist Party of Canada, Marxist-Leninist, the Maoist Party. And she was complaining. She was complaining about my name. She thought that Martin X was, uh, I was, uh, I don't know, she didn't use the word appropriation because that wasn't around in those days. I was appropriating uh, Martin Luther Black King yeah. and Malcolm X. And I'm like, no, not really, not at all. But then she started really going on about this declaring war on Belgium. And she's like, you know, might seem funny to you, but it's not a joke to the people of Belgium. They've been overrun twice in this century. And you're, you're going to declare war against them because of a comic book. And I was just flabbergasted by this. I have no idea what I said back. Was, was she but, seriously, or is this one of these fake questions? Well, it, it was fake. Is she pretending was, to be outraged? You no, think? definitely she was no. pretending to be outraged, but it was, yeah. it was just hilarious. And then the, the, at the very same time, the news broke that the Belgian ambassador to Canada had invited the uh, members of the Rhinoceros Party to the embassy, had given them a case of beer like they demanded, had fed them some fine food and had come to terms of peace between the Rhinoceros <laughs> Party of Canada and the and the country of Belgium. Gosh. And I actually, I have- That, that is wild, man. That, that is- I have cool. somewhere around here, I just saw it recently. I have a printout from the Newswire basically saying, we've come to terms. That, and that is it, so wild. It's man. a real story. It got reported in the New York Times, among other places. And anyway, the main the main thing is, yes, Tintin is. He becomes much more responsible and only uh, fights bad guys eventually. But in these early books, he is a wild card, and he's an incredible fighter too. By the way, that's absolutely nice. Tough guy, many respects. Very tough guy. Yeah. Um, in in. Uh, I think it's in Tintin in America. They they send uh, they send like no no it's in Blue Lotus. They send three big tough guys in to beat him up. He puts he them all beats in the, the crap out of all of them. Yeah, no. It's, what what you're saying. It's, this is something I think we're going to get into more in the second podcast about the racism versus not. You know, right? Because if if it to me, if you look at Tintin in the Congo, it's you know and and you know maybe um, maybe maybe the Blue Lotus. It's sort of like this is obviously a, a sort of a racist caricature of, of Africans. It's Asians, based on it, yeah, right? I'm sure. I mean, it's I mean, they were written in the early 30s, and they're you know at this point, Alger was what like 22, 20. He was very young. Right, right. And, and, I, I, 
and, and we forget that the, think, how of how, think of how racist the world was a hundred oh, for sure. years ago. You know for what sure. I mean? And in a place like Western Europe, that their views of what an, a Congolese person would have yeah. been like, and that's not to excuse those views, but no, to, no. to you know put them into some kind of a context. Yeah. Um, one final thing I just want to say about that is. I, one of the, I, when I read Tintin, I never read Tintin in the Congo as a kid because it was never, it wasn't translated right. into English. It was, you know, and all this. So I read it as an adult and, and, and very often the, some of the books have kind of like the earlier ones have sort of trigger warnings, explanations. The Blue Lotus does. So does the Congo. And one of them I read was this sort of thing while well, the representation was Tintin in the Congo and there was a kind of a trigger warning. In the, right, right. And it said something like, you know, the representations are very, you know, it was done in the 1930s and blah, blah, blah. It's not meant to be taken seriously and so on. But what was really weird was some of the editions took out that rhinoceros scene as I wouldn't be surprised be, because you know it, it's but not the not the anti-black racism. No, it's it's, it's funny weird, too. you know. It's it's funny too though because it is like I was talking about some of the randomness in in one of the in one of the um strips that just, just to read. be clear, just so our listeners understand. Tintin is involved in some sort of a conflict, and so there's a there's a rhinoceros that's going to kill him. Um, is, is that, I wouldn't say so. No. No. Well, no, somehow he has a stick of dynamite and he has a stick it of dynamite. Head, that, right. One of the, the thing about it that's that's disturbing and maybe and why they would remove it is that it's completely unmotivated. Right. Like, and it's right. not what the he doesn't go around blowing things up. He doesn't go around blowing up animals. Like, right. like who blows up animals? Uh, yeah. Um, so so. I think that's probably why it would be removed. I, I haven't seen that. I I noticed that the, the edition I read. I, I'm not sure if because I, I think the edition I read had it in it. Um, yeah. But I just I remember reading somewhere that maybe some editions they took it out. I, hmm. Maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong about that. But no, I, that I, I do know that that was know. that was clearly stated as probably the one of the worst things in the trigger warning too. Like yeah, you know, this is a really yeah. horrible thing. You know, very uh, not anti-animal. I don't know how to think about it. Just I don't know. It is use, uselessly violent towards exactly, animals. Exactly. Let's say, you know? I just wanted to mention one of the because I think actually we should probably wrap up. I know you're the host, but <laughs> but. Uh, we do have yeah, I know, I know. Don't worry. I, I, I haven't. I don't have much more to go through. I, I know because yeah. we're we're basically uh, getting close to wrapping. So, but I just wanted to uh, yeah. mention the the one I actually made a note of it. It was so insane in the broken ear. He's he's stuck in this cabin. The bad guys have him. They they have their guns pointed at him. I think they just said to him. I think they they said you know where is the where is the idol? Mm -hmm. And he told them or he, he told them where he said it was. And then they said, well, now we don't need you anymore. Maybe so we'll shoot kill you. Yeah. And the cabin is struck by lightning and a ball of lightning ejects Tintin from the cabin and he wakes up on the road and they wake up, where's Tintin? That's how crazy stuff happens. Some, some of the things are like that are so crazy. I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. In Tintin in America, you know, there, there's a an explosion. There's a, there, there's a, just like, there's like, a, he, he's a, driving a runaway train and there's an old right. guy crossing the tracks in a wagon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he hits it. And then the guy's sitting next to him. It's kind of funny. Like, he's just sitting there. Like, he doesn't even yeah, yeah. notice that his wife, he's not exactly. in a wagon anymore. And then, yeah, then the train explodes and, and they both end up in the tree. Kind of like, it's just like. Totally he, reminded me. Totally reminded yeah. me of Buster Keaton and his adventure. Yeah, like, yeah. That's it's... the kind of thing that would happen to him. It's like, oh, yeah, you get bounced into the <laughs> yeah. into the passenger seat, of course. 
Yeah, and this really demarcates those older books from the later ones were sort of like you could almost you're reading them going all of this could really happen. Exactly. Like this, and you know? I, I, the, one one of the reasons why I wanted to mention this is cuz uh I I find it kind of sometimes slow going to read it simply because I have to go back to make sure that what had just happened just happened. It's yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and especially reading it in French but I, I find that actually with with um, Bond Dessine and, and comic books and graphic novels in general, it's not easier to read just because of the pictures, not at all. It's, uh, um, you, it, it's a different way of making sense. Um, it's more cinematic, I think, than, than obviously than, than books uh, with just words, but it's, it's a different kind of cinematic because of the ability to move back and forth. Yeah, right. that's interesting. So, you can so, uh, scan back to where you just exactly. were a minute ago. Yeah, exactly. and, kind of, and I think I find myself you, doing that a lot when I exactly. Read even if yeah. you're reading all straight through and fast, you're still looking back. Yeah, yeah. Did that what because happened? It, Why is this guy thing, here? Oh yeah, right. This thing, right? Yeah. I yeah, think yeah. eventually the spread becomes the work. It, it's not. Yeah, if you know what I mean, the the, the two pages open together. Yes. Even though yes. It, they, it doesn't go across. Uh, I'm really glad you're mentioning this because this is like a cinematic analysis yeah, of Tintin. Yeah. I think that's really important that the that the most of us who read Tintin books have read the 62 page albums that are, mm -hmm. you know, we, we didn't read the, the the weekly strips that we were right. referring to early. Most of us. And you're right that ALJ created them, especially in the later books to be you can hold it open and there's a coherence on those two pages. Exactly. It's kind of like each two page has some story it's telling. And then yeah. you, sometimes you turn the page and there's something that changes, like surprises you yeah. too, right? That's a very yep, common sure. thing, right? Sure. Yeah, that's yeah. a really important point. I love that. I love your idea too. The scanning up and down is very different from both reading. You could read a novel. Sometimes I go back and I kind of reread a sentence to make sure yeah. I understood what the dialogue was, but that's not the same as just glancing up and seeing the image and then glancing yeah. back down, right? For sure. That's sure. a boy. That's a very. I'm cool. sure. I'm sure that comics theorists have have, have talked about really this. Yeah, yeah. that. But it's, I just. Yeah. This is my number one comic. I suppose it's the first one that I read, and. Um, yeah, it's. it's, well, it's I mean, aside from the peanuts, I guess. Right. It's, yeah. It's yeah. It's it's probably something for. that people who are really into comic books understand as one of the axioms of comic books, yeah. real books, is that, yeah. uh, you know, that the, there are these these things, and you have to have a kind of a splash image on yeah. the two pages to keep the person reading through, yeah. and then leave a little bit of a cliffhanger as you get to the yeah. end to have the person yeah. on the page kind of thing, right? There's a there's probably a whole art that they teach. I don't know, is there comic book schools? I mean, <laughs> is, that, is that a thing? I, you know, I there are film schools, right? So of, I don't know. I think it's a bunch of kids, wasted youths, and yeah. some of them <laughs> youth and end up, wow. I've, yeah. I've, met a few, I've met a few comic artists in my day as a bookseller. And, yeah? Uh, what are they like? They're they're unique yeah <laughs> they're unique they're not like other authors i'll tell you that one of the great things about the the uh comic uh artists is that they they'll draw a little and when they sign the book they'll draw a little oh something. that is so cool they do it, yeah, drawing, awesome. yeah i i remember actually i remember that all the way from uh had a a surprise visit at the bookstore from lynn johnston the the creator of um for better or worse 
Okay. Yeah, I, I remember that in the newspaper yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. And, and she was super nice. And, and yeah, she did that for every, uh, absolutely everybody who came up to the table. So, you know, yeah. that's, that's, but I also, I would say they're, they're just, they're not as polished as authors. They're not used to the circuit and they're not, um, they seem to be more. That's interesting that they're, they're more artistic in a certain kind of way. In a, in a certain right? way. And I think yeah. they're more interior too, which is, which is interesting yeah. too. Uh, apparently, LJ was, I mean, he was a great attention to detail. Apparently, as a person, he was not a very kind individual. I've read oh, I didn't know many, that. Yeah, I know, some very I maybe don't want to know. It, what, what I know, you don't books, want to have your image I've destroyed. I've read, yeah. read a few books about <laughs> Tintin and a little bit about Hergé, but um, one of the books that I haven't read is his actual, the, the biography of him. Mm. I bought it in French thinking, oh, well, now I can read French. But I never reading it, was it. never did crack it. Yeah, yeah. I haven't actually read his biography, but I did read some. First of all, an interesting thing about him: he never had any children of his own. Right, I knew that. Yeah. Right, uh, because he because he, obviously he created this thing for children. Yeah. It was made for children. Uh, and apparently I read somewhere that he was supposed to adopt, you know, some nephew who lost a parents or something, and he it was like a total failure and he didn't really want to do it and he was like he met the kid and the kid was scared of him it was like some oh, terrible man. story yeah like oh, a, man. I mean, we'd have to go and, and fact check the whole story there yeah, but yeah. there was some very negative thing that happened with that you know but just before we we close up i wanted to return to a couple of things one of the things that struck me as you were talking about these crazy things that happened in the earlier books is um, some of the, we mentioned the fictional countries. So we, we talked, uh, I mentioned Sildav, Sildavia is so, I guess, sort of pastiche. And there's something sort of surreal about that that's almost as crazy. Sure. And the other ones are interesting. Like there's um, um, uh, San Theodoros we mentioned earlier, yeah. which appeared, and there's one called Nue Nuevo Rico, which is yeah. seems to be something like Brazil because there's a place, right. a Sao city in that place. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is in the, in the, you know, so it seems to be some sort of a mock-up for Brazil somehow, which I don't really understand. But what's interesting about San Theodoros is it seems to be some sort of a mixture of a weak, small Central American state, like something like Guatemala or something, and maybe a larger one, because it seems kind of big, like Mexico. Yeah. It, there's also one wink to my wife's country, the Dominican Republic, because throughout the series later on, in the especially the later, and it starts with the broken ear, is yeah. there's tapioca and General Alcazar. Right, right, right. Fighting with each other, and yeah, you know, and 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 so, and you know, so it's General Alcazar is originally a colonel, and then eventually becomes president, and, and right, right, all that, and yeah. then Tapioca later, you know, as it, we're going to talk about that later, probably at the second part, comes back, and there's a coup d'état and everything. Oh, very good. And and and, and you notice in the later books, he renames the city uh, Tapioca Polis, right? Right, I remember Tapioca. Remember that, Polis. and then and then Alcazar, I think Alcazar when he takes over, this is at the end of Picaros, he renames it Alcazar. Polis or something and that is actually the 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 35 or 33 year long dictator of the Dominican Republic uh Trujillo was his name right. he renamed Santo Domingo Ciudad Trujillo he actually oh did my. that and that's as far that's as I know really that's good. the only Latin American dictator who did that so hmm. I kind of get the sense that Alge was kind of looking at Latin America and sort of to create that country, sort of taking elements. You look at oh, the imagery, sure. it kind of looks like a slum in Mexico City in some of them. Yeah. Like, you, you know, when you see them kind of walking along, it's all ragged. Yeah. Picaros, yeah. I mean, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's a kind of an interesting thing that I... And I, I, I would say, but also a bit of Venezuela too, because uh, 
there's the oil deposits. There. That's right. Yeah. Good. Very good point. Right. The the because Venezuela and you know yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of different things all together uh, put together. What's interesting about all of the books is there seem to be sort of interspersed real places and real people with especially real places with with kind of made up ones, which is. As, yeah. as a kid, I, I didn't really notice it much, but as an adult, I sort of find it confusing in a weird way. Mm. It's kind no, of, it's funny know. too, because I mean, I, I, one of the things about me is, uh, especially as a kid, but I, I kept up all my whole life is I'm just fascinated with maps. I love maps. Oh, me too. And so, Maybe that's another, so yeah, I, 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 probably love, I geek knew, out on maps for fucking I hours. probably knew the names and recognized the names of all real countries by the time I would have read Tintin. With, that I, I automatically would know whether it was a real country or whether it was. Ah, made. interesting. And, and yeah. Um, yeah, and I also, I made up countries and I, I would make up, uh, you know, uh, monarchical houses and all this kind of stuff. And then wow. drop off to the, so. So I you would totally, have noticed that as a child. You, you, oh yeah, you, I would have. Yeah. I, I, and I loved it. I just thought it was awesome. I loved any, any kind of, and there's a lot of maps in, uh, in Tintin. You know, oh yeah, yeah. Many times up. there's, uh, you know, they they often show, you know, the boat arriving like in in right. Prisoners of the Sun, where you see the map of South America, Palau, yeah. and everything, and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, and likewise, uh, and of course, the uh, map in Red Rackham's treasure is very important. It's that's uh, right. That's actually yeah. a treasure map. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I, I think I, I, is there some sort of a word for a person who loves maps, like a map of like, oh, I, like sure. I just I'm trying to remember no. what it is. But yeah. I, I just I, I can open up a, a, an atlas and just sit there for hours and look at that. Exactly I don't know what right. it is about maps. It's kind yeah. of. You know, and another thing I love doing with a lot of maps is especially like in, in my own city of Montreal is looking at maps. And then when I'm around the city, going, oh, OK, here's where the Lachine yeah. Canal can. And right. So there's that and there's this. Right. So I'm connecting it to how it actually For is sure. in the world. Sure. You know, it's kind of a yeah. you put up a map of Windsor that made me think of you with that. Like you must do the same thing in Windsor. And oh, Detroit, For sure. Right. For sure. And it, Windsor is such a simple, simple city. And uh, um, but uh I put up a map of Windsor, which was just from a different angle. And it's just, it looks totally different all of a sudden. It's Interesting. Like, yeah. It's, it's kind of like those, those maps of the world where it's upside, where we would right. consider it upside down, but it's not, right? Exactly. So looking <laughs> south instead of looking north, and then it makes all the difference. Yeah. We, we have this like formed view that north is up and south is down exactly. from maps, right? I mean, that's where it totally. comes from right it's like it's trained our brains the other thing i wanted to mention to you specifically before we before we jump off is you know it's uh, just getting back to this conservatism freedom thing um you know i can imagine that Hergé was probably a great promoter of free speech because he had to suffer under the yoke of sort of having his speech be suppressed in the Nazi time. And I wonder, I know that's a big hobby horse of yours and me too. It is, and, uh, but I, I don't have anything to say about that yet. I'll see what, I'll see what okay. I- Okay, maybe uh, this could be an opener. Something yeah. next time I, based on further reading, but no, I'm, I'm nothing just- Nothing pops really out. Yeah, mind. it's okay. Except that, of course, you know, except <clears throat> that he is a reporter, that he, uh, that he, believes himself to be free to go anywhere you know that's right yeah and see anything and and i guess report somehow and to or other speak on about things if he's yeah, a exactly. reporter he's so, gonna, he's gonna I mean, right and when you i know? say he believes he I can go anywhere and i include other people's uh dwellings right. you know, he's, he's a he's <laughs> yeah. a um 
I don't know if he's a burglar. No, I, I think that, that, that's a, an yeah, I, I think that's a very pertinent observation that you know the the, the, the sense of freedom of speech is also a I think freedom of movement is oh, for sure. somehow connected to that yeah. as well. Well, they're both freedoms, let's say. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and they're both present in in Tintin and Alger. He, you know, he would have believed in those as as yeah. axioms, and those are those are not obvious to people who. I mean, if you just you know, not to get hung up on some bullshit woke stuff or whatever, but I think a lot of people don't. I think a lot of people look at free speech today. A lot of younger people, and they kind of view it with suspicion. They think that free speech is kind of a code for sort of like old white guys who just want to hang on to power you know it's kind yeah. of, they just say that what they really want to do is they want to hang on to the power they've got you know because it's right. the world is a battleground for power and the white yeah. guy the white males have all the power so if they if the white males like free speech that means that right yeah, yeah, you know I, right yeah. it's kind of like what is yeah. that making any i mean i'm, I'm caricaturing but i'm just oh fair enough um, I, I came to understand that unfortunately through uh through interactions on social media, and I don't know what to say about it except it's yeah. the most important freedom. And it is. It is. It, yeah. There are no. There is. I, I I really appreciate your dogged persistence with that, and how you you push that. You know, you you push against hate speech laws. You push back against the the, the hate speech courts. Like you're very consistent and everything. I mean, I have on the door of my my office. I have two two quotes. One is the George Orwell. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, it, uh, if, if you, if you're not free to tell people things they don't want to hear, right. then yeah. you're not really free. Something like that. Like if you, yeah. if you can't say something, someone doesn't want to hear, then, then you're, it's not free speech. Right. Like, you know, it's, if so, yeah. it's, if, if, if liberty means anything, it means the right to tell people things That's you right. want to hear, I think is the yeah. actual quote. And the other one is Noam Chomsky. Yes. Um, that's a very similar uh, quote. Yeah. Well, I could be confusing. His, his, his quote is, if we don't support the, uh, the um, freedom the, the of right, freedom of people, for people we oppose, yeah. then we don't support then, it at all. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, it sounds like a kind of like a sort of a dogmatic statement, but it's actually, it, it, there's no freedom of speech. If, if I say, oh, well, hate speech, clearly we have to stop those people. The minute I do that, I'm just basically saying, as long as it's within the spectrum of what I think is safe, yeah. right? Then you know, I mean, that's not necessarily what I agree with, but it's I'm, I'm defining a limit to it in yeah. a certain sense, right? It's uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a dangerous precedent beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. So this is something I'd I'd like to we, maybe we could return to that I'll, later. I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll continue reading with an eye out for painting uh, as a as a as a freedom fighter reporter without borders yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's yeah. it's really I, I think that like that that's a that's a great way to think about it they, and as we, we we should sort of tease the next one so um, we're going to return to the, the the idea of freedom because it becomes even more pronounced in the later books i think i, I would you say. know I, I think it becomes uh yeah. the, the the examples are much more intense uh, I'll recount to you something I do with my students about um, about slavery uh, because I do a whole unit about slavery, but I'll do that in the next one. But um, there's also um, the the you know so so just to kind of conclude where we are now, you know we're up to kind of about like Red Rackham's Treasure, maybe Prisoners of the Sun, something like that. Those right. are the fantasy books at the end of World War II, especially yeah. Red Rackham's Treasure, and we've got all the. Um, elements ready to go and we've got this sort of the 
beautiful, the it, really those books, I think Secret of the Unicorn is probably the first really amazing album, right? Like I like in terms of like the, yeah. the coherence of the story, it has a very complex, interesting story that connects all the way through to the end yeah. and then picks up with the next one. Like it's I, not even King Ottokar's Scepter, which I find great. Is not, it's still got a kind of a bumpy, even though it's better than some of the earlier ones. And it doesn't right. have the, the levity of Haddock. It doesn't have, you know, it doesn't have Professor Calculus. Right, just, right, right. You know, so what I love about Calculus is this, I, I love this, the way Hergé was looking at sort of scientists, the kind of absent-minded, brilliant scientist with a genius IQ who's kind of lost in his own calculations. It's kind of a sort of a, 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 a beautiful image of kind of an Einstein or some other, yeah. maybe, you know, and yeah. apparently he based it on some real science scientists he knew. There's, I've seen pictures. Well, this is what I was yeah. saying about um, these proto-calculuses and the, yeah, they're all scientists. It's like, the, uh, or professors. And it's like, yeah, this is a, a character that he's, he likes, he wants to, and he keeps coming back. Include and eventually him. becomes, one of yeah. friends and collaborators. And so it's, yeah. And yeah, so we see, we see that calculus too creates this incredible comic relief because I mean, you were talking about how the, the Thompson twins sort of misunderstand yeah. each other. Calculus is really interesting because he's a little hard of hearing in one ear is what oh, yeah, he always yeah, says, yeah, yeah. right? When he's actually like yeah. nearly fully deaf. Right. And, and basically it's not that. He always understands pretty much the opposite of what the person, exactly. <laughs> it's always exactly. like whatever the person wants to get across, especially Haddock. It's all, and then they're yelling at him and he's like, oh, yeah. wonderful. You know, and they go off and there's, you know. And so there's, there's a kind of a deep joke too, just about, I don't know if it's like autistic type professor. Oh, for no. sure, yeah. There's yeah, yeah, the, sure. yeah, the whole spectrum. Yeah, I guess so. That a person who kind of ignores the social conventions somehow, yeah. but is still a very endearing character. It's oh, still very sure, good. Because sure. they all love him, even though Haddock is constantly frustrated yeah. by him. When he gets kidnapped, it's like, we got to go save him. He's like yeah, our best yeah. friend or whatever, you know. Exactly. Which is so really that, interesting. That, let's not give away the second half. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. Okay, I'm just going to check if there's anything that I, yeah. Um, Nothing more that I wanted to just for this closing up. The last thing I would say, just it's a technical thing, is the 62-page album format was actually because of paper shortages during World War II. Oh, really? Yeah, which is sort of That's interesting. And it's, it's, it's so all of the albums, even the earlier like Congo ones, were reformatted into that 62-page yeah. thing. And it, it made them, it's, it's sort of like the way that the Beatles music is kind of a set, it's a bunch of albums. Like, I, I don't know, it's, it's like, it, there's sort of a, there, there's a way oh, yeah. you can evaluate Tintin, you can compare the books because yeah. they're all kind of, it's like a haiku has a certain number. That's of, really cool that it, that it comes from- A restraining. Origin, but it's, it's such a, an excellent restraint. It's so, yes. so, yes. good. so good. Yeah, you, it's-, you it's you Go ahead. You don't yeah. feel like, you don't feel like they're padded out and you also don't feel, you know, they're just the right length. Exactly. And, and, and you get used to it too, as a Tintin oh, reader, sure. you know, okay, for I'm sure. on page 31. I'm about, I'm about the middle of the act or whatever, yeah. right? Like, yeah, you know. yeah it's, it's probably sort of, something that as, as kids we were trained into without even not noticing it. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's sort of like, I mean, you, when you go back in history and you see some of the greatest artistic movements, often are people going around a certain constraint, finding creative yeah. ways, I mean, just, Dumb examples would be blues lyrics were often right. sexual innuendo, 
right because they couldn't speak openly about right. sex so they came up with these amazing sort of ways of yeah. talking about it in ways that are just beautifully poetic and and that comes from a restraint a certain exactly. kind of restraint right, right, right? Right. it's a similar thing but yeah, yeah. Okay, listen, uh, Martin, I, I really appreciate it. I, 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 um, I want to thank you again. And um, it may be a while before the next one, but we've got kind of food for thought, I think. For sure, yeah, you've definitely given, uh, we, we have a few things that we got to actually return to. And but then the other more. thing is, it's just a good idea to have uh, an eye out for certain things as I'm continuing to read because i like I, I think i said to you already i've never read them chronologically before mm -hmm. and it's and it's an eye and you're enjoying that oh for sure yeah yeah interesting yeah. I, I don't think i have either actually i've started i did it a bit for the preparation for this i read tinted in america and now i'm reading the the blue lotus i'm trying to go right. back you know but that's in, that's an interesting thing to do is to literally go because then you can see a kind of progression like you can really exactly. see it if you're as you're doing it like yeah and and there's there is um a little bit of continuity, usually not as much continuity uh, between books, but there's certainly a little bit, uh, even very early on, the the whole um, the the drug trafficking in in cigars of the Pharaoh and Blue Lotus and the characters are. So I mean, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, I think it's yeah. just fascinating uh, that the how he built up these characters, both the good uh, guys and the bad guys. I just think it's amazing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's hard. I mean, I wonder. How, just it strikes me as as we close on a sort of a, on a sort of a philosophical question. How how many people like people listening to this? Do you think a person who's not a Tintin fanatic could listen to this and get something? I'm afraid not. But yeah, I'm like, I, I sort of I'm, get the impression probably not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how how are you gonna? You can't just you can't spend the whole time describing the the plot of these books. It's, yeah, it would be also, too like I say. There is, especially in the early ones, there's a whole element of randomness that you you kind of just have to embrace. So maybe that's something we should consider for the next one is to spend a bit of time as we talk, because I, I did it with the King Autocar Scepter. Yeah. Like maybe well, we, we should think we, of, yeah, putting, because yeah, I don't want it to be restricted to total Tintin heads. No, you know, my not. colleague, Ben Wametat, yeah. I talked to him today. He's a huge, like, just like us, you know, kind of. Yeah. You know, he's, he'll listen to this and be like, oh, yeah, he'll be all into it. But I mean, you know, does that mean we're going to have three people listening to this? Thing? <laughs> right. Well, see, well on, on the other hand, uh, Tintin fandom is a lot uh, like it's I pretty wide. Yeah. Wide. And also there are some people who have read like my father, for example, he's read some of the books and my yeah. brother, too. He's not like a total fanatic, but he could listen to this and kind of, oh, yeah, I know who that character is. And I remember that book was that early one seemed sort of racist or whatever. Yeah. You know, right. They'll be able to I kind of follow that. some of it. Right. Uh, yeah. OK, so that's something, you know, some some just for the future of just for the for the next one. What we're going to get into is the post-war era where the um the books become as i mentioned earlier much much better the the drawings and the, the complexity and yeah. that that get that that sort of increases as you go through the 1950s i think and yeah. get into the 1960s they get they get to a point of sort of like operatic shakespearean like they just turn into these amazing works yeah and it's sort of hard to believe that that weird guy running blowing up a rhinoceros you know what i mean it's like it's hard to, so how did that turn into this yeah. character who's in the red sea you know and yeah. involved in this incredibly complicated anti-slavery plot or yeah. whatever that's going on you know yeah so so we're going to get into that and so maybe to, I, I think probably to do that maybe for it, whenever we mention we can have a little rule whenever we mention 
a uh, you know uh, an album would you say okay the plot of this one is x and i can make some notes and maybe you yeah can... well, you'd better yeah you'd better because i i might get i might get lost in digressions about you no know, problem or whatever <laughs> <laughs> I, I love I love your your digressions. I I also really appreciate it. You seem to be bringing a more of a personal element, like your experience. I mean, this is, is interesting. This is the thing. I, I I don't know what exactly compelled me when I joined Facebook in twenty eleven or whatever it was, but I I put Tintin up as my avatar, and I have You've never kept it felt, ever since. Never felt the need to change it. It's not <laughs> that I'm. It's not that I never show my face. It's simply that, like, this is me here. Right, uh, right. All it is. I don't know. He, he, he goes way all the way back with me to whenever. That's sometime interesting. So, so you feel you feel like a personal connection to Tintin himself somehow. Yeah, I'd say so for yeah. sure. Yeah, I'm not sure because I remember as a kid talking about it with my friend Mark Gabriel, and he was like, "Oh, you're just like Captain Haddock or something. Like you're more mm -hmm. like him." Because I have a very irascible, uh, sort of a more gregarious personality. Tintin has a very—he's a very low-key, careful. If you watch him as a character, he, oh, sure. he doesn't talk as much as some of the other characters in the later yeah. books. He kind of watches, and he, yeah, he's watching, right? He's talking. He's and he's smart, very you know? smart, very observant. He may and, be taking down notes that you, you, you yeah. just never. <laughs> him doing but no yeah he's he's an observer he's sure. an observer and, yeah. and and yeah and, and it's right supposedly taking his notes to make his report or whatever right. but what he's really doing is he's doing all his deductions of whatever the crime is he's right. observing yeah. what's happening and, 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 and that's another thing always, i, I wanted to say to quickly uh, sorry it is it just i love the kind of what Tintin is constantly an evidence-based person. He's like, okay, here's oh, the sure. traces of this. And like, yeah. everything has to be kind of, there has to be a reasonable theory for him to accept something, yeah. you know, which, and there has to be evidence and he has to find the evidence. And I love, that's a great lesson to young people. I think. Oh, it's like, good. That's you know, great. Yeah. That's sorry. Good. I interrupted you. No, that's interesting. But I, I would say, yeah, for sure. He's all about, that's why, why he's observing. He's all about the evidence and he always is, He's always looking for something. Yeah. <laughs> That's why he breaks into people's place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not just going in there to have a drink. And yeah. Okay, okay. Martin, listen, uh, thanks again. Uh, and uh, we'll get to the next one whenever we get to it. I mean, there's no rush because, as I said, I got a lot of political things I'm doing. There's an election yeah. here in Quebec. And uh, yes, so. exactly right. All right. So thanks Good luck again. With that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com. 